Hey everybody, welcome back to the Scott Ross Show. I am so fired up that you're here and today I've got a really great episode for you. You are going to get a ton of value out of the gentleman that I am interviewing today. And I just want you to know if you're driving or you're listening to this on a run or a walk, uh, listen twice. Make sure you've got a chance to take some notes because you're going to want to write down a lot of what's in this interview. The gentleman's name is Drew Dudley. He is an internationally acclaimed leadership speaker, best-selling author, and renowned TED speaker. And he's just on a mission to help people unlearn things that they've been maybe subliminally taught about leadership and transform everyone into the leader that they can be. Um, He's the founder and chief catalyst for what's known as day one leadership. And he's helped organizations around the world increase their leadership capacity. Some of his Clients include McDonald's, American Express, J.P. Morgan Chase, the United Way, and more than 100 colleges and universities. Uh, he became famous originally for something he called the lollipop theory of leadership and then uh, went on from there to write his book, uh, This is Day One, and talk about his leadership philosophy, the day one process. And he's going to get into all of that in this interview. The other thing is, is that he is bipolar and he battled being um, more than 100 pounds overweight and he also battled alcoholism and using his day one process has enabled him to overcome both of those challenges. So you're going to get a ton of value out of this episode. I just can't wait for you to hear it. And again, I hope you listen a couple different times and take some notes. Um, We'll have all the links to everything he refers to. He's going to refer to a number of books. He's going to refer to some websites. We'll have all of that in the show notes for you. So without further ado, here's Drew Dudley. So Drew Dudley, thank you so much for being on the Scott Ross Show. I'm very, very honored to speak to you. Um, first of all, how are you feeling? Are you safe and uh, secure and everybody you love doing well up there? I, I assume you're in Canada right now? I am in Canada. Things are going great, actually. And, and oddly enough, there was a level of guilt I was feeling because it's been a, a crazy couple of years, especially as the book came out. And uh, I did not realize how how physically and emotionally exhausted I was until the busiest month of travel we ever had got canceled on the 10th in March. I still had like, I think 12 or 13 speeches between the 10th and the end of March. And uh, I got home and didn't like, did not have the urge to do anything for a month. Like I, I couldn't write a blog. I just, I had nothing left. And uh, it took, it took that to convince me. So as, as difficult as it's been, as much as it's demanded a shift, uh, I also realized that it's probably for me, obviously, I want to keep in mind the people for whom this is not, because uh, I do have a, a great deal of privilege to be able to say that, but this was a really uh, big reset for me. Uh, it, it gave me the chance to let go of the idea that I needed to be working for like nonstop while we're off the air. And I, I really took, I've lost 17 pounds and uh, I'm working hard. And, and after about a month, I was super excited to get back to work more so than I've been in a couple of years. But my family's safe. They're in the woods. It's all good. Great. So why don't you just introduce yourself a little bit to the audience? Just give us your background and kind of how you uh, came to be, you know, somebody who's talking about leadership all over the world. Yeah, by accident. 100% by accident. I went away to a university to be a lawyer because if you get good grades in high school and you don't like science, you're supposed to be a lawyer. And about halfway through university, I started getting heavily involved in event planning, specifically around fundraising. Uh, I got involved in uh, a a fundraiser to fight cystic fibrosis here in Canada. It really introduced me to not only the people who had shaped my life, but a lot of the skills and talents, because it was through that that I started creating workshops and seminars on 
things like event planning and risk management, marketing without a budget, all for these young people. And that's what led the Dean of Students at U of T to see me, asked me if that type of practical leadership and philosophy that I was going forward with was something we could build into a program that was less theory-based for young people and actually like, here's how to engage in, in leadership acts every day, not sometime in the future when you got a, a job. And you know that was 10 years at the University of Toronto building that program. And then it was the only thing standing in the way of sharing more and more presentations because the demand kept going up. And of course, when you're running a program, I was in front of classes, you know, hours per week doing different topics, and it just became something I loved. And people were asking me to do it externally. And the only thing standing in the way of doing that more was, you know, my full-time job. And when that turned toxic with the, you know, the addition of some changes within the office, I headed out and it's been, you know, six weeks after I left my job, I was lucky enough to be asked to speak at TEDx Toronto. Uh, when I walked off the stage, someone grabbed me and said, can we represent you to do this for the corporate world? And I said, I do not think the corporate world will give a crap about this, but fire away. And that was a thousand speeches ago. And so over the last 10 years, I've been working with companies and organizations, not-for-profits, to uh, take a concept that we built at the university and try to help them apply it individually and within their organization. So it's been about 20 years of, I didn't even go out, like set out to talk about leadership. I, I set out to try to help young people accomplish particular things. And in the process, discovered the power of storytelling and how much I liked being in, the, in front of audiences. And it just grew from there. Everything was unplanned. But, you know, I think uh, a mentor of mine, even though I only met him once, I still reference him all the time, told me that five-year plans are not nearly as important as five-year momentum. And so he said, make, make decisions when options come up based on how much momentum they'll build, not how well they fit into a plan that you had at some point in the past. Because when you only stick to plans, opportunities that aren't part of the plan don't get their, their due consideration. So... This was a long and winding road that I certainly did not expect to be on, and I have absolutely no idea what the next few, ter few turns will be, but I haven't known that in 15, 20 years, so I kind of got used to it. Didn't see COVID around the corner, though. Did not see it. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to see that sort of thing coming. Now, for those people who aren't familiar with you, you know, you're you're known for kind of this lollipop moment uh, theory of leadership. So why don't you just explain what that means and just talk again? I mean, you know, uh, people, we're going to link your TED talk in the show notes, but, you know, give us the 30 second overview of your lollipop moment and how that led to your theory on leadership. The lollipop moment actually is a story that I started telling um I started telling this story to try to demonstrate to young fundraisers that while the amount of money they make for a charity is important, how they go about doing it is actually where the real legacy lies. And it's a story about how when I was early on in my time at this fundraiser, like back before I was national chair and building all the, you know, actually part of the organization leadership, I was a guy who was running, uh, running a campaign. And during that campaign, in order to try to convince people to do it, to get up on eight o'clock on a Saturday morning to do a fundraiser during registration at the university where nobody can get out of line back in the nineties, they're stuck in line. I apparently, and I don't remember this, uh, stopped next to a girl and then looked at the guy next to her and told him, you have to stand next to a beautiful woman for two and a half more hours. Why are you not talking to her? And said, why don't I use the lollipop to break the ice? And he was so embarrassed. Like she told me this four years later, like walked up to me out of nowhere and told me this story. And she said, you handed a lollipop to this dude 
you know, to try to break the ice for everybody standing in line. And he was so embarrassed. He wouldn't even look at me. He's holding out the lollipop to the side. So I took it. And when I took it, you told my parents, you know, it's your daughter's first day away from home. And already she's taking candy from a stranger. (laughs) And she said, everybody laughed. And up until that moment in line, I was so overwhelmed that I was going to quit. Like I literally was, was waiting to turn to my parents to say, take me home. And there was something about the laughter that followed that, that changed that for me. So I put it off for a day and then someone else did something else like that. I put it off for another day and eventually I'm, I'm going to graduate in a few weeks. I just stopped thinking about it. And I haven't talked to you in the four years since it happened, but I heard you were leaving and I heard, and I needed to tell you that you have been an incredibly important person in my life and I'm going to miss you. So good luck. Mm. And then she says, there's one more thing you should know. I've been dating that guy for four years since you introduced us. And then a year and a half after that interaction with her, I was, I moved a thousand miles away and the two of them invited me to their wedding. Wow. And the, the key to the idea of a lollipop moment is I don't remember that. Like I just don't, but maybe the most powerful moment of leadership in my life and the biggest impact I had on another person is a moment that I don't remember. And I wanted first to get those fundraisers to realize that, yeah, it's how much money you make, but you're going to create moments like that that are so good for our organization. And then I started sharing that story on a broader level to say, you know, most of the biggest impacts you'll have on the world will have nothing to do with your plans. They'll be a result of the unplanned consequences of your everyday actions. And the idea that gets to the core of it is that the lollipop moment was an accident. Like that kind of interpersonal impact is what true leadership is because it's accessible to all of us and it's powerful. And it's pretty much the only source of power on the planet where there aren't barriers between that power and most people. Most of the power on the planet isn't accessible to most people, but moments of impact like that are, but it was an accident. So what we started to develop at the university, what I talk about now with, you know, the lollipop moment leads to the day one process, which is ultimately about how do we make those moments more conscious and deliberate because we can stumble into them because we're good people and that's awesome. But isn't it better if we recognize that power and actually have a plan to harness it and use it every day? So that's really what the focus has become. Less titles, more moments. <laughs> I, I got it. So let me just maybe paraphrase some of that back to you because I want to make sure the audience is really getting this idea. Um, and, and, you know, I'm going to paraphrase a little of what's in your book and the, in your talks as well. And so correct me if I'm, I'm saying this wrong, but you know, there's this idea amongst the average person that leadership means you're this other kind of human, you're the superhuman and you're way up on a pedestal and you do superhuman kinds of things that the rest of us can't do. And what you're saying is that, no, 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 no. All of us have the ability to make significant impacts. We may not even appreciate. It's kind of that butterfly effect because we can do those little things that touch a person and those ripple effects make a huge impact. And therefore takeaway is anyone listening to this can be can, can consider themselves and should consider themselves a leader. Is that, you know, pretty accurately stated or no? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the one adjustment I'd make is that they're not little things, they're simple things. And simple doesn't actually mean little. We actually devalue these moments of interpersonal impact because we call them little things. And I think they're not actually little. Ultimately, what it comes down to is I'm not saying the people on a pedestal aren't leaders. Or I'm just saying that not everyone can or should be a CEO. Not everyone can or should or wants to be, you know, somebody with a big title or in charge of a lot of things. But there is a form of leadership to which we all can and should aspire, and we should give ourselves credit for it. 
So that you're 100% right. I always just like to differentiate to people is I'm not diminishing, you know, people who have achieved a lot. And I'm not saying that people with great influence aren't leaders and that everybody else, like everybody is. I'm saying that not all people who have influence are leaders and that not all leaders have gotten to positions of influence and money and titles. But I, I find that people who, the most common form of leadership on the planet that comes from most people is ignored as leadership. Most of the leadership on earth comes from people who don't consider themselves leaders. And that to me is something we can shift. I'm not saying leadership is something different than we've been taught. I'm, to, I'm talking about how leadership is something broader than what we've been taught. Hmm. So why does it matter that people see themselves as leaders? Like, why are you passionate about more people seeing themselves as a leader? What would that do for the world if, if, if your message could, you know, be adopted? I, well, one, I think it's like, it's, it's behavioral psychology. The things that feel good when you do it are the things that you're more likely to do again and again. If it feels good for better or for worse, you do it again and again. Like carbohydrates, I think is a really good example. And so what happens is when we don't, when we let moments of powerful leadership that happen in an individual interaction in our lives, when we let them pass by without calling them leadership, what we're effectively doing is we're denying ourselves the gratification and the impact on ourselves that doing that does, which means we're less likely to do it again. We're less likely to seek out opportunities to do that. And when we ignore moments of leadership, we effectively eliminate leadership from our uh, organizations from our communities from, from our lives because we define it too narrowly I want people to recognize their leadership because when you recognize those moments as leadership what you're effectively doing is giving yourself evidence that you matter mm. and that came to me when I started to realize that when I ask those questions when I ask those questions when I ask a specific question sorry I ask people why do you matter and most people can't answer the question I asked it to a student you know, 10, 15 years ago, and his answer was, I don't yet. That's why I'm working so hard. And that's an unacceptable answer to get from people that you care about. But I've asked hundreds of people since then, 95% either can't give me an answer or it's one they're making up on the spot. And that upsets me, right? Because these are extraordinary people. And for me, I think part of the reason that we, mat we don't know that we matter or we can't answer why we matter, one, we've never been asked. And that needs to be fixed in the education system because we make students more concerned about how they look on paper than whether or not they've given themselves evidence that they matter in this world. And I think that unless we have evidence that we matter, we deny that we do. And when you don't feel like you matter, whether you realize it or not, you don't adequately treat other people like they do. Self-respect, ultimately a lack of it leaves a hole in you. And there's no hole in life that can't be filled with self-respect. And I think that the foundation of self-respect is an acknowledgement that not only do you matter, not that you're hoping to, that you are planning to do it, and give yourself credit for it. Because when you start to realize that you matter, you start to realize that you are far more powerful than you think. And for me, it's important people recognize that they're a leader and that leadership is in their daily behaviors, not in their titles, because it acknowledges what I think is a really important truth in the world. Like you're not always in charge of what you have to do every day. You're just not. But you're always in charge of who you are. Always in charge of who you are. And until we acknowledge that, that we have that power, that we do matter like that, I don't think we use that power. And that to me is a big reason why it's important. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the things you're alluding to is something I see a lot in the, you know, mentorship and stuff that I do. And that is that people actually 
kind of fear their own success. I mean, you know, it's like that Marianne Williamson poem, you know, our deepest fear is not that we're inadequate, it's that we are powerful beyond measure. It's like they're, they're almost afraid of what it would look like if they played full out. I mean, it, you, you've now, you know, like you said, you've spoken to more than a thousand audiences. You've talked to thousands and thousands of people. What is your takeaway from that? Like, why is it? Why are we wired to fear our potential? We're educated out of it, I really think. The education system's the most liberating and we're so lucky you know in 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 the western world in north america to have uh, like a free education system for everybody not everybody has that privilege but it's liberating and it's empowering it can also be among the most dangerous systems that we've got because it teaches compliance over courage and i think in a bigger way what it does is it makes it, it gives examples of ideas like it, it wants to teach concepts to people. And when you want young people to understand a concept, you give examples of it. But what we need to realize, I think, is that whatever examples you give people first to explain a concept, it not only shapes, but it limits how they think about it for the rest of their lives. And like a lot of ideologies and a lot of beliefs and many of them limiting that exist in this world, we can't actually trace back where they started. But I'll tell you where leadership understanding started for most people, the examples were presidents and scientific groundbreakers and people who conquered empires. It was mostly supposedly straight white men. And and we have to acknowledge that shaped the way people look at leadership, the role that they have in our society. Because if you don't see yourself in those people, you basically have been taught that's what leadership is and you are the other. You know, and, and that idea of the other is so dangerous. It's not only leaders are this and you are that, but it's also that color of people is this and you are that. That religion is this and you are that. That is all taught early. No one is born hating. We're taught it. And I think that it's the same with so much. These are fundamental ideologies that people build their experiences on from the first examples. And the first examples of leadership were the other. They were giants and individuals of color and women uh, people with disabilities, they were not represented for, for the last few generations in the earliest examples of leadership that we were given. And I think that that has a big role on it. It makes us see ourselves as less than, even if we think, okay, yeah, well, I do good things, but I'm not them. And by creating groups that are the other, what it does is that if you're not in the dominant group, it makes you feel diminished. And that can either make you feel like less than you are or resentful or what we're seeing in the world is both. I want to take a moment and thank our sponsor, Bluehost. If you want to do anything entrepreneurial, you need a website. And the best place to host your website is Bluehost. Bluehost supports more than 2 million websites worldwide. Their bandwidth is unmetered, so you never have to worry about performance. And the biggest reason to go with Bluehost is their support. I use them because they have 24-7 support based in the United States, and they are amazing at solving any issue you will encounter. Bluehost has anytime money-back guarantee that allows customers to cancel whenever they want without penalty. Right now, Bluehost is offering my listeners free domain name for one year. That's worth at least 10 bucks. Free SSL certificate. That's worth at least 65 bucks. And one click WordPress installation for just $3.95 a month. That is less than a dollar a week to get yourself or your business on the web. Go to scottrossonline.com slash bluehost to take advantage of this offer. That's scottrossonline.com slash bluehost. Get online and take yourself to the next level.
So I want to dive into your day one concept, the day one process. Obviously, this is something you speak about all over the world and, uh, you know, is the title of your best-selling book. This is day one. So first of all, connect the dots between lollipop moment and day one. You, you did that a little bit earlier, but maybe dive into that a little bit further and then I want to break it down. Yeah, well, the different the lollipop moment, what really got it is I think that demonstrates the individual power of a moment. And the day one process is ultimately about how to make those moments more conscious, right? So what I started to realize is that, oh, wow, lollipop moments are cool and they're everywhere, but we miss a lot of them and we don't give ourselves or other people credit for them. So how do we change that? Like, how do we close the gap between the person we want to be and how we're actually behaving? Because it exists for all of us and we don't deny it. What we do is we rationalize the gap as being temporary. I want to create lollipop moments all the time. I want to be a person of integrity. I want to be a person who doesn't stay in relationships that suck, right? But we always rationalize that gap. Well, until I graduate, until I pay off my student loans, until the wedding, until the mortgage is paid off. We always rationalize the gap between the person we want to be and how we're behaving. And my argument is that the type of leadership to which we all can aspire is at its foundation this recognizing that gap exists, acknowledging that it's your responsibility that it exists, and then actually taking steps every day to close it. And the day one process, that was what we came up with to try to actively close the gap on a daily basis. The gap will never fully close between the person you want to be and how you're behaving. And if somehow you close it all the way, you should probably extend the person you want to be. Like That should always be like beyond your fingertips. But yeah, that's kind of how we, we did it. We wanted to move it from hope to plan. And that's really where it came from. So break that down then for us. I mean, what does it look like to make those moments intentional? Ultimately, the whole concept of day one emerged from when the theory I was working with at the university merged with my own personal experience, merged with the insights of a whole bunch of people. And a lot of it came from the fact that, you know, I had day one of starting my own company. I had day one of being a vocal advocate for mental health awareness. Like it was five years between when I was diagnosed as bipolar and I told anyone publicly that wasn't a very, very close friend of mine. I did it for, to a student because she was refusing to acknowledge the battle she had uh, and to get help for it. And when I told her, look, this is part of my experience and it made my life much better. Her response was, why should I do something that you're too chicken shit to do? And I mean, that's getting smacked in the face. So I had day one of, of moving out and sharing that. I had day one of, of going from 300 and some pounds to 100 pounds lighter. I had day one of uh, life without alcohol. And one of the things that's consistent in all of those processes is that if you don't want to have a drink for the rest of your life, or if you don't want to, to stay big for the rest of your life, or if you want to take care of yourself, you have to not have a drink that day. You have to not go over a certain number of calories that day. And then you have to treat every day of the voyage as if it's the first day. Because that means you can't rest on your laurels from the past and you can't be intimidated by how many more days there are to stay committed to this. The only focus is today. The behavior is today. And if you, because day one has a humility, a commitment and a forgiveness to it. And if you screw up on day one, doesn't mean you're not worthy of the mission. It means you, you start again on day one. It's not about restarting. It's about recommitting on a daily basis to these non-negotiable behaviors. And so the day one process is about adapting, adopting the idea that every day has to have non-negotiable behaviors, and that includes leadership behaviors. So the day one process involved a mindset and some behavioral psychology. 
the mindset was imagine if every night before you go to bed, you have to prove you deserve another day on the planet. Not at the end of a semester or a year or a five year strategic plan, the end of every single night you had to prove you deserve another day on the planet. In order to prove it, you have to pass a test. And the test has six questions. So you have to get three of them. It's a pass fail. You don't have to ace it. And you are given the questions in the morning. And if that is our reality, then those questions are non-negotiable. Because if you needed to answer three or six of them in order to get another day on the planet, you would not prioritize email or meetings or even picking up the kids ahead of it. You would make sure they got answered every day. And each of those six questions are tied to a particular value that you want to embody as a person. And because of that, because there's a connection between the questions that are demanded of you and the values you want to live, the process makes you prioritize your to-be list above your to-do list. And ultimately, it's been a long time for a lot of us since we did that. As for why questions, it's because behavioral psychology taught, taught me that, you know what, questions are a more powerful driver of human behavior than goals are. Because what it does is it leverages the cognitive discomfort that is generated by not having an answer to a question. It's, there's two things, the Zigarnik effect, which says things on your to-do list you haven't completed take up a more prominent spot in your consciousness than things that you have completed. In other words, stuff you haven't finished that you have to bugs you badly until you finish it, both consciously and subconsciously. And the question behavior effect says, if I ask you questions about a behavior, you're more likely to engage in that behavior. Not orders, not goals. If I just ask you questions about generosity, without intimating that you should do something generous, you're way more likely to do it down the road. So the day one process said, pick your values, define what they mean, turn them into questions, and then your job is to take that test full of questions and pass it every single day. And my work ultimately is about helping people figure out their own values and their own questions. But in the book and in my presentations, I share the six questions that, that I've come up with, that the students came up with, that, that drives my company, which are, you know, what have I done today to recognize someone else's leadership? Uh, that embodies impact. What did I do today to make it more likely someone would learn something that embodies growth? Uh, what did I try today that might not work? but I tried it anyway, which embodies courage. And man, I love that question. Uh, what did I do today to move someone else closer to a goal? Empowerment. When did I elevate instead of escalate today, which is class. Elevating is trying to succeed. Escalating is trying to win. And then self-respect. What did I do today to be good to myself? Got to get three out of six of those questions every day. When I do, I know that even if everything else in my life blew up in my face, at least I was the man I wanted to be for some portion of the day. And that means that the day was a loss, but it wasn't a waste. Any day where you can point to a specific instance where you lived up to the person you wanted to be, that day is not a waste, which is not to lie and put sunshine lollipops and rainbows and say, oh, it's a win, you know, silver lining, screw it. Some days you lose. But there, if you lose, you play. And there's respect in losing and playing and losing. Wasting a day, that's different. You waste enough days, it changes how you feel about yourself, and that changes how you treat other people. So that's the day one process. Every single day, non-negotiable behavior is tied to your values. I love it. I love it a lot. I mean, I love what you said, uh, you know, your to-be list becomes way more important than your to-do list. You know, I don't know how, how old you are. I'm dating myself a little bit here, but I don't know if you remember um, – 
Franklin Covey used to have stores in every mall and they had this thing called the uh, the Franklin planner and uh, if you bought a Franklin planner you know you could everybody used to carry around back in the day before everything was digital you know these binders that were their planners you know and Franklin planner was like the the uber planner of all planners and um, you know you could just buy the thing it was you know super expensive or you could be like the real thing and go through the seminars and it was all about making your what you did every day align to your values so uh you know it just uh, what you were saying there about your to be is more important than your to do kind of reminded me of that whole franklin covey process now one thing i was going to say i also love that, that you said there and i want to go back to it because i think it's really important for a lot of the people who listen to this podcast and you talked about the humility and the ability to forgive yourself for a bad day and just keep going that the things the things don't end because i know like we have a lot of people who listen to this who are entrepreneurs and maybe, you know, they're scared to get out of the starting gates. They're scared to make a sales call. They're scared to put themselves out there. Um, and if they don't do it today or they don't do it this week, they feel like, well, I failed. It's over. Just, you know, put it on the shelf. People trying to, you know, get fit. Well, I didn't work out today, so I screwed up. People who are trying to stop using drugs and alcohol today. I, I did. So it's over. Talk to me about the ability to forgive yourself and start over again tomorrow and not let what happened today prevent you from from staying the course yeah for me it was it's the idea of the difference between start over and recommit as well uh and i mean it's it's difficult because i do want to recognize that everyone's experience is different and so part of it was it was so bad for me like if you're dealing with addiction and like it becomes so desperately important that you learn from that experience how to do it Right. And so I think that with weight loss, it's something where you're like, oh, well, if I if I slide back, you know, it, your life doesn't fall apart necessarily. And so in many ways, I was fortunate enough to battle addiction. And that sounds ridiculous. I'm well aware of it. But, you know, my my the woman I love died by suicide. I dealt with addiction. I was 100 pounds overweight. And there is something about those challenges which makes you realize that you can probably do more than you thought. And if you haven't had that, I do recognize that it's, it's, if your life doesn't depend on it, it's hard at first to stay focused. And for me, I sort of looked at it like this, build failure into the plan. So when I wanted to lose weight, the woman who helped me, you know, I didn't know how to do it clearly. And look, people are overweight for a million different reasons. I was overweight because I made bad decisions. And I think a lot of people are overweight and, and I get that we don't want to fat shame anyone, but don't hate your body. Don't ever hate your body, but do not lie to yourself when it's unhealthy. And I was horribly unhealthy and it was my fault because I made bad decisions. And so I needed help to fix that, to help me make better decisions. And the woman that I, I asked said, okay, here's, the, here's how you do it. And she gave me questions. All right. And so I answered those questions, but she said, failure doesn't destroy missions. Unexpected and unplanned failure destroys missions. So we're going to give you 65 days, more than two months over the next year to not answer these questions, to be at a banquet when you're speaking where there's nothing healthy, uh, because banquets always have a damn dessert table, not serve dessert tables. You just go and get more dessert. Uh, you're at a friend's house and there's nothing healthy. You don't want to be rude or you're just tired and lonely on the road. and You want pizza. 65 days. Every You have two months to do it. And just give yourself permission. And when you use one of those days, you did not fail. You did not fail on your day one. You were following the plan. You were using something you have a right to use. 
So that was part of it is that I built failure in. 65 days out of 365 days, I could eat whatever I wanted. And I did sometimes. I would eat large pizza on those days. But 300 out of 365 days had me lose 100 pounds, 100.7 pounds in one year. And so it's the same. I have relapsed with my alcoholism. Very few people haven't. But ultimately, what I, I came to realize, now that's slightly different, but I've given myself permission when that happens. I'm like, okay, you're not supposed to do it, but this is what, you're supposed to do whatever keeps you from drinking. Five times, the rest of your life, and that's it. Or, you know, that like, I never want to, but there is a gap, there's failure in our lives. And whether it's the weight loss or the mental illness, I give myself a certain number of times to fail where that's part of the plan. And so I think that is what is key is as entrepreneurs, for instance, just recognize that you're allowed to decide not to make a sales call four days this month. All right. So when you choose to do it, you're not violating your commitment to yourself. You are honoring the right that you have given yourself to choose not to do it that day. Now, what also happens as a result is you become a lot pickier about when you do it because you're like, well, I only have five. Do I really want to use one of my five today or would I rather use it that day I want to spend with my family? And that's how it started to work. So give yourself not only permission to fail, but actually plan it. Be like, I get this many times. And then what happens is those things become sacred to you in many ways. And it also allows you to be like, I don't not have to eat pizza for the rest of my life. I get to do it uh, at the end of this week. Because if you think about it, I could have a large pizza every Saturday night for an entire year and still lose 100 pounds. Mm. Terrific. Now, one question I ask every single person who comes on the podcast is if you could only recommend one book to people for the rest of your life, what would that one book be? This is day one. Of, no, um... <laughs> that's for my publisher. There you go, publisher. I did it. Um, you know what? God, anything Patrick Lencioni writes, especially if you're mm -hmm. a business person. Okay. It, see, it's so hard because it depends on what you're looking for. Like if it's business, good to great is the best business book ever written. If it's life slash business slash leadership, it's all Patrick Lencioni stuff. If you work with people, the five dysfunctions of a team. If you want to start with one, start with the motive about why you want to be a leader. Lynchpin, Are You Indispensable by, um, uh, by Seth Godin. If you've suffered a loss, Everything is Wonderful and Horrible by Stephanie Whittles. Uh, like it's, it's a tough one. Um, but I loved Five Dysfunctions of a Team for people who had to work with other people because it also gets to the heart of how we interact with one another. Uh, also, just pick up anything Brene Brown wants. And if you're, uh, uh, if you, anything, you want to build a business in the 21st century, a whole new mind by Daniel Pink. So I totally ignored your question there and gave like seven. <laughs> That's great. That's great. But also if you if you read my book, I talk about uh, what I was taught by two D-Day veterans about the, like ever talking about the greatest, the best, the happiest, the one, uh, they encouraged me very strongly to never do that. So they said, what you do is you draw a line that's called the great line. And instead of ranking things, it's like an attic. You just toss crap because you get one best book, but the numbers two through 50 are still pretty great. And if we only focus on the best, we ignore many of the great things in our lives because they're not the greatest. And he said, so no longer rank things when you experience them, 
just say, was that above the great line? Cool. And if it was, toss it in the great line attic. Because then you can walk up and you're not pulling it out of a rank. You're just picking up something in the attic and being like, oh, sweet. Cool. So I like to think I just lived their mission there. I love it. I love it. Well, you know, in our family, we have something that kind of has become legendary. It's known as the list. And it was the list of the movies you have to see before you die. And so um, it's rated by genre. And we have criteria. I have criteria I created that I won't get into right now. But bottom line is that it's a non-ending discussion because every time we see a really good movie, it's like, Dad, does that go on the list? Is it list worthy? And it's not ranked. It's literally just like you said, just a bucket of the really great films. So I love that idea. Can you give me uh, like five above the great line? Sure. I mean, you know, very easily. I mean, we've got uh, Schindler's List as as an example, Um, you know, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And by the way, just just so you know, there's two criteria basically in big, big, broad swaths. One is it's a truly astounding achievement just artistically in filmmaking. And then the other is you won't be culturally relevant if you don't understand the movie. Like even if it's not a great movie, you still needed to see the movie at some point. I didn't understand uh, on a television example. I didn't understand. We were on a break until last summer when I finally watched Friends. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. I got no soup for you, even though I've never seen Seinfeld because that's so iconic. But I hear what you're saying, man. Okay. That's great. Like, for everybody out there, once you watch Casablanca for the first time, you're like, oh, oh, okay, I get it now. <laughs> right. And so, see, Casablanca is on the list oh, God. because of exactly what you're saying. It's like you're, you're off, you, you're, you're missing out on a lot of cultural re- references if you, if you don't. And I didn't want my kids to be in that position. So, the greatest, the, maybe this is off topic, the greatest insult I ever believed in a movie is in Casablanca where he says, you don't like me very much, do you, Rick? He goes, I suppose if I ever gave you any thought, I wouldn't. And I'm just like, that is the single greatest burn in the history of movie insults. Like, you don't like me very much. I suppose if I ever thought about you, I wouldn't. Yeah, I love it. So good. Okay, so you're doing something really awesome right now for the frontline people in this pandemic. Can you talk about that real quick before we let you go? Oh, yeah. I mean, the the whole world got changed for me. I mean, my whole life is traveling around and giving speeches. And obviously, in like, one and a half weeks, the whole thing got blown. And so, you know, we get together. And let's face it, I take pride in what I do. And I think what I do impacts people, but it certainly isn't essential. Like, if the post apocalyptic world happened tomorrow, and they line us all up, they'll be like, what do you do? I'm an engineer over there. What do you what do you do? I'm a doctor over there. What do you do? I'm a lawyer, get in the food line right? Uh, what do you do? I'm a speaker on leadership. Yeah, go over there. We're going to eat you. And so, you know, we're sitting here in our first meeting going like, what the hell do we do? Like, what role can we play to help things? And we looked and the only real thing that we had as a product, uh, other than, you know, the ideas was, well, we, we've got this online program that what I just laid out in the day one process. And I said, well, it's about identifying your own values and creating your own customized test. We have an online interactive program that takes you through doing that it's actually an online interactive version of the book really where you know you can you know there's a choose your own adventure there's q a's and we said well it's 200 bucks why don't we just drop it to 10 and just give the money that we generate to frontline workers and then we'll figure out what else to do we didn't expect so many people to go for it we're just like this is all we've got right now we can't figure anything else to do and we're doing more things now, but yeah. So if you go to drewdudley.com, it's called Day One Leadership Direct, and uh, the program's ten bucks, and all that money goes to frontline healthcare workers. It'll be here in Toronto for us. It's a it's a local thing. I talk about personal impact, 
So what I'm going to do is this isn't a charity. I'm going to go to a nurse that I haven't seen in two months, uh, but I stay in touch with. I'm going to go and say, we have this much money for you. What would you and your team like to do with it? So I'm not going to claim it's a charity. We're going to hand five or $6,000 to a group of nurses and say, what do you want? Do with it what you will. Uh, from a pizza party to gifts for your kids to say, sorry, I was gone for two months, whatever it is. And if you'd like to support that, uh, please, truedudley.com and just buy yourself. It's usually 200 bucks, so you're getting a hell of a deal. Love it. So we will link to that in the show notes. And you just started to lead into my last question, which is just how do people keep track of, of you? Obviously, the website and, and uh, you know, what's your favorite social media platform? Instagram. I like Instagram because for the most part, nobody's miserable on Instagram. Like Facebook is a cesspool of crap. I mean, I stopped allowing um, comments on my Facebook feed, which is really hard to do. Can you believe that Facebook has simply decided to not allow you to disable comments on your stuff? Because that says something about their business model. Without hatred and trolling, it loses them money. So I love Instagram because Instagram is my food, my dog, beautiful sunsets, uh, and my cool makeup. And I love it. So Every, every social media for me, though, is at day one Drew, D-A-Y-O-N-E-D-R-E-W. And just quickly, as we're talking about Instagram, if I could throw out a quick, uh, cool thing that's made my life better since this all started. Uh, I don't want to dwell too much on COVID because everything's been said on COVID. Uh, go back to the first photograph on your phone and create a folder on your phone called uh, The Great Line. And go through the, from the very first photo and just add the absolute the ones that really move you, like your movies, right? Like whatever that, that undefinable thing that makes a photograph different than the others and put it in that folder. But as you're scrolling through all of your photos ever taken, take note of the faces that are in those photographs. And some of them you'll realize you didn't fight. You didn't have a falling out. Just life took over, right? Maybe one of you had a kid. That'll pretty much do it. And ultimately send that photo to them and just let them know like, hey, thinking about you. Um, I hope everything is great. And for me, that's led to like, you know, every day I got a half an hour conversation with someone I haven't talked to in a while because I was reminded of the role they played in my life. And all the way through it, you were reminded of just how lucky and cool your life is. And I think that that's a gift you should give yourself. Mm, love it. Well, Drew, you have been so valuable. I mean, you just said, uh, I mean, it's just been gold and I'm really, really grateful. I know the audience is going to get a ton out of it. Again, we'll link to everything, the book, the website in the show notes, guys. But uh, Drew, it's been a real blessing to have you. Thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, thanks for the honor of being asked, my friend. So I think you can see now why I was so excited for you to hear this episode and, you know, just some takeaways, that whole idea of your to be list being far more important than your to do list, the idea of building failure into your plan. You know, you've heard us say on this podcast many times, anticipation is power, reaction is pain. So if you anticipate that you might have a day when you don't pass your test, uh, you know, if that's built into the plan, you're far more likely to have success success, the ability to uh, come up with your values and then write the questions that you want to test yourself on every night. I mean, that alone could change your life. And of course, there was so much more in this interview. So be sure you get out to scottrossonline.com. Check out the show notes for this episode and uh, we'll have links to absolutely everything. Until the next time, keep raising your leadership lid. God bless you guys.